This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Artificial Intelligence Podcast with your host, Dr. Tony Huang. Today, I'm with Babak Kojak. Babak, can you give a brief introduction about yourself? Sure. I'm the CTO AI for Cognizant. Cognizant is a very large services company. We have more than 350,000 employees around the world. And I run our AI R&D team here in San Francisco, where we do core AI research as well as develop our neuro AI platform. My background is in AI. Uh, I have a PhD in AI. I've been in AI since the late 80s. I started three companies and have worked in larger companies as well. So can you tell us a bit about your journey in the tech industry and like ultimately what led you to focus on artificial intelligence? The reason was very initially very personal. It was just I wanted to figure things out. And when I thought I figured out how computers work. That very same day, a friend of mine challenged me to uh, try to figure out how the brain works. <laughs> and I, it was a slippery slope from there. And you, it's very difficult. You can read a lot about how the brain actually functions and still not understand why it has these emergent properties uh, of intelligence. So you, very quickly, you start having to define what intelligence really means. And once you do that and start trying to implement various different facets of intelligence, you start straying away from that initial goal of whether or not uh, you want to actually create something intelligent like humans are intelligent or, or are, are you just want to create something intelligent, period. And as I started playing around with that in the lab and with various different algorithms, I realized that they're very powerful, especially if we uh, simplify the domain. Like we as humans live in very complex set up and we have to solve very difficult problems. Uh, but if you simplify it and then uh, try out these intelligent algorithms, all the way back in the uh, 90s, it was very clear to me that we have a superior way of tackling these tough problems using you know, what we've been inspired by with uh, intelligence. And so I started thinking, okay, it might make sense to try to focus on bringing that kind of intelligence and AI to the real world and using it in, in practical applied applications. So that's how I got started. And that's pretty much been my career since then. So as someone who's been at the forefront of AI development, how have you seen the field evolve over the years? Yeah, it used to be that I had to start meetings by defining what AI is. That's no longer everybody thinks they know. Oh, <laughs> so I've had that, right? They're like, well, this is buzzword AI. Yeah, exactly. And now it's now you have to level set as to what you think AI means. And AI has always had this problem of expectations. The field itself has oscillated between wanting to create a single system that is intelligent like humans are, sort of AGI. And it's, it is what many of us got into the field for, is like, how do we make a, an algorithm be as smart as humans are? But the field it helps itself has gone from that to, hey, let's split it apart and look at what are the various different facets of intelligence and can we actually define them and tackle them separately? Can we then bring them together? And, oh, it's very difficult to run it in the environment that humans are running in. And so maybe simplify the problem. In the late 90s, AI was really defined as intelligence manifested in an agent. And that agent had a defined domain 
in which it had some autonomy and it could act and on behalf of, of humans and alongside other agents, so multi-agent systems back then, to try to solve a problem. Uh, we moved from that to machine learning, distributed machine learning. How do we, it, it's a short step from simplifying the domain to getting multiple agents working together to going, let's make these agents as simple as possible and then make it a very large community of agents working together. And then moving on to, for example, deep learning and neural networks, where you have these neurons that are little idiot savants that are very simple in their domain of operation, but they work very well alongside others, to getting to a point where, okay, I want this learned. So I, I really want the behavior. You can't program this thing now. There's so many neurons, so many agents, quote unquote. So I want it to settle on its behavior through learning, which is deep learning. And then through deep learning and large language modeling, we now are back to the point where we're like, oh, there's this one system. It's very powerful. It has these emergent behaviors, like it understands language. It understands how to translate. It can write code. It can write test cases for code. And maybe it's intelligent. Maybe this is it. Maybe this is AGI. And there was a brief moment when it, it felt that way. But now back to reality, we're thinking, okay, we're, we've happened upon a system that's very smart and it operates on using language, like natural day-to-day -day language, but it's not something that we can use just like out of the box and have it do stuff for us. In fact, the best way of using it is in an agent model. <laughs> so we're come full circle where we're thinking, okay, take these large language models, give them a persona and have them work with other large language models with different personas, all working together towards some sort of a goal. And I'm happy to report we're back to where we were in the 90s with multi-agent systems. Yes, every company right now is dipping their hands into AI. Like, it doesn't matter what industry vertical you're in. Everyone's, like, ex either experimenting with it, they're curious about it. In your opinion, what are some, like, considerations for enterprise enterprises that are looking to make sure that they secure their future using AI? Yeah, that's a great question. Step one for many of our clients has been, hey, we see this powerful system and most folks that we talk to, their first experience has been through ChatGPT. And how do we bring this very powerful technology in? And initially the thinking, given the media has covered mostly the weaknesses and risks, has been how do we do this in a low risk, high return, high impact way? And a lot of the use cases have been inspired by what we know something like ChatGPT to be good at, such as machine translation, a chatbot, like a very powerful chatbot where you can actually follow up and do dialoguing with it. You can have it write code and maybe augment your coding. It can come up with, I don't know, sales strategy or marketing material or come up with a really snappy acronym or do your son's college essays or whatever. So that has inspired folks to say, okay, what are those types of use cases? And everybody has that. Like everybody at the end of the day has some sort of machine translation or support, like call center support or chatbot use case anyway. So that first wave of adoption has been on that. And But the key though is how do I, as an enterprise, as a business, set myself up, apart from my competition? So that goes beyond, oh, productivity for my employees. It's now you're starting to think, okay, what is my, what is the KPI I measure success on strategically setting me aside from my competition? Let me start from there. And now look at the workflow uh, within my business that leads to that KPI. And let me see where do, uh, along that workflow I can impact using generative AI. And it doesn't come naturally. It's not the first thing we think about when we think about AI enablement. But I think we, that at least at Cognizant, we really advocate that sort of thinking. What is better than actually tasking your AI to optimize against your KPI? That gives you a sense of what is the art of the possible. And the optimization is actually impacting directly rather than an indirect, oh, it's 95% accurate. Yes, it's accurate, but how does that translate into dollars or 
And so I think that's where we're taking it. And that's, we're starting to see the beginnings of that. It's still early days, but we're starting to see companies think strategically about it, even at a board level strategic, like how do we bring this in and set ourselves? So um, I don't know if you've caught up with the news, but at Microsoft, they released a, like they pretty much went full auto with news curation. And very recently, there's a, a UK publisher named The Guardian where they published a, an article and then Microsoft had a poll that would be automatically generated based on articles. And unfortunately, The Guardian was talking about like a murder victim. And then Microsoft had a, had a poll that appeared that said, vote to see or take a guess as to how this person died. Did they get murdered? Was it like suicide or something like that? And it, that, that, that blew up the internet. And you and I were both innovators. And so I'm, I'm actually curious on your take on how companies can balance innovation with like eth ethical considerations when they're trying to deploy AI. Microsoft in the last three years, they went all in on news curation that, that's AI powered. And then now we're seeing these like backlashes from it because they went full auto with it. Like, how do you balance those two? There, there's going to be some budding heads between innovation and some ethical considerations. Like, how do you, how would you balance it? Yeah. Um, the fact is that at Cognizant, we also advocate pervasive yet responsible use of AI and generative AI. And I think it's very important to make sure that is front and center of how you set your systems up. We just talked about setting your AI to tackle your KPI and your goals. One of your KPIs is to reduce reputational risk. It's to actually be responsible, uh, be ethical. If you can define it, we can set it as a goal. So I think it's very important for us to make that central to how we design our AI systems and not an afterthought. And there are many places within that from conception to development of that AI enablement where that kind of responsible thinking comes in, ranging from, of course, whether your data is balanced and, and uh, unbiased. So it's that source data, that source news item itself, all the way to the, the manner by which you actually make the decisions um, and the KPI that you're using, all the way to actually safeguarding against irresponsible choices. For example, on the news item, would it make sense for you to have an, a, a large language model check that poll that this system actually put together for whether or not it might be offensive? So that's one thing that I think you would want to put in there if the entire system is going to be autonomous. Then there's the fact that you want your AI system to be able to raise a flag when it's unsure, when it's unsure whether or not what it's actually publishing is ethical or responsible. Um, because there will be cases where it goes, oh, I'm not quite sure. So that's where a human needs to step in and take a look. And going full throttle, as you described, I think that's risky, especially when it comes to media. Like your consumer is like everyone. And so the risk is much larger for you to offend folks. You really do want to have all the safeguards you want and not make it fully autonomous, I would suggest. Yeah, that's, a, that's such an interesting topic because there's a lot of companies that uh, have spurred up trying to build what's known as like an AI firewall. And so it's basically like a checker that checks the, like the output of, in, of the original AI, or it like kind of acts as like a bodyguard for any type of text prompts that go into the original AI so that it's able to get that type of it's able to alleviate a lot of the ethical considerations. And there's, I think at the last like Databricks convention, that was like the big hot topic was AI firewalls or having some type of a secondary LLM system to check the, yeah. the output from the first LLM. For sure. Yeah, yeah. It, it slows things down a little bit. It might be a little bit costlier to do, but it's actually safer. Now, there is a caveat. There is also, there's still a weakness in that. At the end of the day, um, you have the decision as to what kind of poll to create being made by a black box system for which you really have very little, very little about the logic it uses to decide how to construct this thing. So what you're faced is, okay, construct it and I'll put a safeguard on that. So I'll have another LLM like the firewall that you're talking about looking at it and going, this might be a, a problematic. However, that second one is also a black box. 
So you, you still don't know how it's making its choices. At Cognizant, we advocate, like, we advocate the use of white box decisioning systems at the point, at that last point where an actual decision needs to be made. Because then it's fully transparent. I know exactly what logic this system is using in order to make the decision. The good news there is that the whole workflow leading up to that final decision as to how to put together a poll and all that kind of stuff could be black box. That's perfectly fine. Like your prediction of how consumers, readers are going to respond to that, whether or not you'll get a lot of hits, all that kind of stuff, all that could be black box. It's that final decision you make based on those predictions that can be white box and explainable using technology that automatically constructs rules. Uh, we know, for example, large language models are good at writing code. They're also good at writing rules. So if we actually task the large language model or using other technologies with coming up with the set of rules, transparent, explainable set of rules that we then mechanically run in order to process the, let's say, news item into a poll or a follow-up or whatever, then we have transparency here and we can check for stuff. Like immediately, if we see that, for example, it's making a choice based on, I don't know, some gruesome murder inquiry, or it's making a choice based on, for example, I don't know, the race of the perpetrator. Uh, that's a bad thing. And you want that reflected right there in the rule set. And you want to be able to identify it and get rid of it. And you can only do that if that decision maker is open, white box. Last week was a really big week in terms of what happened within the AI community, which is President Joe Biden signed an executive order that will dictate the direction of where AI is going to head towards in the states. And then following that, there was an AI summit at Budgley Park in the UK where all of the world leaders came. We had Vice President Kamala Harris with a bunch of representatives from different states, and they all talked about the same thing, which is they're, they want to use AI moving forward in the future because they see the benefits of it, but the that's not really the big point of it. It's the risk uh, mitigation that it was center, center stage for it. What was your hot take on like the executive order that was signed last week, as well as some topics such as there, for instance, there was a big request from P President Biden to increase the level of AI experts within the, the government space. So they basically set up a new website called AI.gov, where they that's where you go to look at vacant jobs within the AI sector in the government space. So they're hiring, they're going to be begin hiring a lot of AI experts from the private field into the government space to to capture that that the, those talents to increase the capabilities of the uh, U.S. government in the AI sector. What's your hot take on that? That's a good thing. <laughs> For sure, hiring more AI experts makes a ton of sense. A few things. One is, yes, I think, I think it's good that we're taking AI regulation seriously, and these are steps in the right direction. And these AI systems do have a lot of risks and limitations. They tend to make things up. They confabulate, or what's commonly known as hallucinate. And if we don't know how to use them and rely on their belief system or whatever they've trained on, these systems are trained to produce text or images that appease the whoever is in, uh, querying them. That doesn't mean they're not trained to be truthful necessarily. They're also not trained to verbatim remember any, everything that they've trained on because that's really, they've trained on that to be able to abstract, not to retrieve. And so that is an issue. If you rely on these systems as your Wikipedia now or, or your search engine, you're likely to get information that is false. And there are issues of copyright risk. There, there are other limitations as well. Now, um, I think some of those are addressed in what came out of President Biden's communique, but mainly the target is the few large companies that are able to develop these large language models, because building these models is not easy. And so you have to have a very large data set, 
and a strong AI team and a lot of money to be able to actually train these. It's in the tens of millions of dollars every time you train one. So not everybody's actually training them. So the regulation mainly is addressing those folks. If you're actually training a large language model and you want to put it out there, we want to be like testing that, kicking its tires. There are some regulations we want to have in place as you're developing it, which is all well and good. What it misses out on and, and what I'm not seeing as much is what I believe to be the biggest risk with this technology, which is the technology in the wrong hands. You can do really bad stuff. You can do very good stuff with this technology, but you can also do very bad stuff with the technology. And the technology is out there right now. So there's some limited control over these commercial large language models, which today are the state of the art, like GPT-4 or Claude. But there's also these open source models, open source in quotation marks, where the weights of the models are available. In fact, even the foundational models that haven't been fine-tuned are available for download. You can download them. some of them. You can actually run on your laptop as well. This opens us up to all sorts of misuse. The least we can do is categorize what are the misuses and to come up with at least some form of training, maybe certification for folks that get access, in fact, to the raw foundational models that don't have the safeguards and some limitation on how you publish. I think is important and I think it's neglected. I don't think we're looking at it. It feels to me like we're either mischaracterizing this technology as the be all end all, just ask it something and it will answer. And therefore we should make sure it answers correctly. I think that's wrong. The premise is wrong. We shouldn't be using these technologies just to answer any question. We should use them as agents that work together to, to solve problems for us. Uh, then there is this thinking that, okay, if we regulate the process of generating them, creating them, developing them, then we're good. And I don't think that's sufficient. And then there's this whole noise, like science fiction almost noise about how, oh, we're hitting singularity and these systems are going to take over the world. And to me, that's just a big distraction from the fact that you have these foundational models and open source models out there today that can produce stuff that can impact our democracies and ways of life. What's more immediate and dangerous than that? And I don't think it's being addressed as much as it should right now. Yeah, to my understanding, you have been responsible for creating the world's largest distributed AI system. Is that correct? Yeah. So what, what were like the challenges that you like came up with when you're trying to work at that type of scale? Oh, yes. So we use a different uh, technology called evolutionary computation, which is inspired by uh, natural evolution, very similar to how neural networks, deep learning, LLMs are inspired by how the brain operates and neurons, networks of neurons in the brain. This system is inspired by natural evolution. Both are caricatures. They're very far from the actual reality, but they work. And evolution is a, an embarrassingly parallelizable process. All the individuals in uh, an evolutionary system can be validated and operated in isolation from one another, and in fact, even asynchronously from one another. So you can actually run them separately on separate CPUs, separate machines. And so that's how we actually created a system. Back then, we were working on building a system that would trade in the stock market. And it became the, the basically the algorithm that was used for a hedge fund that we spun off. And for that, we it was difficult. There wasn't enough processing capacity for us to do this in a data center. In AWS, it was early days of AWS and it was very expensive to run on AWS. So what we ended up doing was we went out and we found idle cycles on machines out there in internet cafes and game centers, mainly in China and uh, some in South Korea, some in Turkey. And we would actually pay for those cycles. So it wasn't, it, we weren't sourcing them for free. And the other challenge was the data. So when you have something that's so massively parallelized, you want to be able to get the data out to these nodes. And so you have to have some form of sampling of the data and taking it out. And with so many nodes spread around the world, connected by not very high bandwidth connections, that's a big challenge as well. So those are some of the challenges that, that we faced. And then, of course, there's this challenge that you're running something that you want to really keep proprietary out on so many machines around the world. 
But so we had IP as to how to deal with that and how in a federated manner, the results of the evolutionary process would percolate up to servers that we hosted. And then we selected from those servers into a whole process of further selection to get to the, to the uh, actual traders, automated traders. Cool. So what have been some like surprising findings from like your work with distributed systems? What took you by surprise? Like what was the biggest shocking thing that you found when you were developing these distributed AI systems? Um, I was, well, I look at things from the technology perspective. To me, it was very interesting. That scale actually did result in better and better um, solutions. The fact that uh, usually when we run evolutionary computation systems in a smaller setting, we look at how good it gets and it plateaus at a certain point. And we know that it's a law of diminishing returns running it more. But for the type of problem that we were running and the type of solution that we were looking for, it seemed like it wasn't really plateauing and you could actually run it continuously. And so we actually had a run that that ran for, I think, a good nine months continuously, a single run running on the equivalent of two million nodes for nine months. That is huge. And I think it went through, in its process, it went through a few trillion solutions to get to the solution that I was looking for. In some ways, analogous to what we're seeing now with large language models, where, where it seems like scale is getting us more capable. Uh, when you look at those earlier LLMs like GPT-2, they have limited capabilities. If you just look at those, it, it, it's it, you have a hard time thinking, oh, it, if I grow it even larger, it might get better it might actually be capable of doing things that I didn't even expect it to do and I didn't really set it out to do. But when you look at GPT-2 Excel, the, these larger GPT-2 models, it, you start seeing things, you start seeing capabilities that you didn't expect. Remember that we're only training these systems to predict the next token in a string of tokens. So for a system that's only predicting the next token in a string of tokens to suddenly be able to translate from one language to another, that's a big step that is unexpected. And, but it's what happened. We went from GPT-2 Excel to GPT-3 to GPT-4. And these, these models keep getting more capable just simply by making them larger. You're going from 7 billion parameters, 6 billion parameters to 60 billion, 145 billion, probably a trillion nodes. And that's all you're doing. You're just growing it larger. There's some techniques that you play there, but in essence, all you're doing is making them larger and they're more capable. So for the audience members that are listening in, over half of the listeners are on an iPhone like this. And if you use the iPhone, you've pretty much have used Siri at some point. I'm going to educate the, the listeners, but this is, this man here is the primary inventor of the tech that's behind Siri. Like, what are some like insights that that you want to share about like the initial development of the technology that I use every day, which is Siri? If it doesn't work, by the way, it's because I'm not involved in it anymore. So just putting that disclaimer out there. Okay. Initial days of Siri. One uh, story I have, which, so two stories real quick. One is we set this whole system up. Initially, it was supposed to be used to control your home entertainment system. So at, at our startup, we actually set the whole thing up so that you would, this is 1998, so that you could actually talk into a microphone and basically have it change the channel, go turn the light on and off, record something, all that kinds. Back then we had VCRs and DVDs and satellites and stuff like that, no streaming. And so you could actually control this thing. So we set it up. I was very proud. We did a whole bunch of testing on it and it seemed to be very robust and do quite well. It, it uh, was able to do more than one language at the time, which was a testament to the power of the back then revolutionary technology that we we're using. So we get our first outsider to come in and use it. This was the former chairman of Borland, who was an advisor, great guy, walks in. And so I sit him there and I gave him, I give him the microphone and I'm like, okay, yes, this is set up. Go ahead. And he just sits there looking uh, and silent. So it was very awkward. So I'm like, don't you want to say something to it? And he just he flipped his head, thought about it some more and still nothing. And I'm like, you, you can say anything. Why don't you? 
His response was, I don't know. I've never talked to a TV before. I don't, I don't know what to say. So that, that to me was interesting that we're not used to talking to our devices. And so you need some level of prompting. You need some level of setting the stage, telling your users what can and cannot be done. Otherwise, it's not like a human sitting there. So that was one interesting learning that I had. The second one was we had set this up with, with a car company and we were experimenting with them. It was supposed to be in car, so you could actually use Siri, but it was in a car as you were driving. So it made a lot of sense to be like hands-free and so forth. Even today, I think a lot of the use of Siri is in, in cars. Okay, this is the setting. And we were trying it out and we were trying it out on a speech recognition system that was slow. So not the natural language processing piece where I was working on, it was just translating the voice into text that was taking longer than you'd like. And there was this silence and it just didn't work and people would start talking and it just didn't work. So what I did was, um, actually not me, the car company engineer was really into Yoma. So he put some Yoma concerto on there so that when you give it the query, the Yoma plays, and that takes maybe five, six seconds, and then, and then it responds. And the first three or four times you use that, it's actually pleasant and nice and great. You're, you're listening to some Yoma, but the Yoma was starting over again every time. And I was playing around with it over a weekend. It was just driving me nuts. The same few notes over and over again. So what I did was I um, came up with this list of snappy, funny answers that the system or, or sort of responses the system can give initially while in the background is working on provisioning the response, like giving you directions or whatever, setting up the karaoke, whatever else uh, you want to do in a car. They, they, they have karaoke's for this. Anyway, so I had this, it was 20 things. And in amongst them were things like, ah, oh, the system is taking too long, but let's give it another few seconds. Ranging from that to things like, let me consult with my AI back backend, blah, blah, blah. And it was picking it, it randomly. So that was the weekend. On the Monday, when we started testing it again, the test scores for our usability shot up. Everybody was like, oh, this system is so much smarter. The fact of the matter was we didn't change anything in the back end. The, the intelligence of the system wasn't changed at all. We just had a list that we were picking from randomly. And it gave the impression to the user that the system is much smarter. And that we learned from that. In, in the original, still today with Siri, there is actually a lookup table for some subset of queries that come in that makes Siri, at least initially, it made it... Uh, feel much smarter than the alternatives. Like you could ask it to tell you a joke or you could ask it to tell you the meaning of life. And it had some really cool snappy answers that it pulled out of a lookup table. No intelligence there. It was just very random, but it made the system much more pleasant. So I think not, let's not forget the value of usability and uh, the value of uh, kind of setting the context and getting our, our users comfortable. I think it makes a lot of sense. With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, motion sounds something like this. Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy on, easy off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. What's your take on like the evolution of like personal assistants like Siri or chatbots in the age of Gen AI, right? So like uh, my take is a couple of years back, it, it would take me months to develop a simple chatbot. 
now I can do it in two, three minutes and, and I don't even have to code. So like the progression of Gen AI, for instance, has rapidly accelerated like chatbots and personal assistants to the point where I believe in like the next three months from now, like three to six, every company out there is going to have their own like personal assistant or a chatbot that's integrated into whatever system that they have. What's your take on like the evolution of these two very useful techs in this new age of Gen AI? Yeah, absolutely. I think in Co and at Cognizant, we see a lot of use cases where our clients are like, yeah, we want a chatbot for X, fill in the blank. And as you say, it's not very difficult to set them up. It does depend on what kind of backend functionality you want to expose. And there is engineering depending on the use case. But yes, you're right. I do think that is a obvious use case for generative AI, not the least because it understands language much better than anything that we've had in the past. It, there, there are ways to actually integrate it into your proprietary data set and proprietary functionality that kind of makes it seamless. And you can dialogue. You can actually go back and forth. It keeps the context. So it's very powerful that way. And also there is that expectation now, like having used chat GPT, we know that these systems can be very smart and very helpful. And so we're beyond the point where we're like, oh, it's this annoying little side thing that I want to get away from because five times out of six, it doesn't understand what I'm saying. No, ChatGPT does understand what I'm saying much more often. It's much more useful. Therefore, maybe this chatbot also has that kind of technology now. So I think there's more use of that. Now, I've always said that I don't think we will end up using conversational interfaces in the home, for example, that often, unless we they're more conducive to anthropomorphizing them. If it's a cylinder in the corner of the room, it's harder for you to bring yourself to actually start conversing with it. Whereas if it's at least a, a, a robot or a robot head that shows some empathy, some facial expressions, when you're talking to it, it turns to look at you or something. Um, I think that would make it much more conducive to uh, discussions well beyond functional, like things you wanted to do. It might actually even be some conversation. I hope that is in the works. I think we've had, I'm, I'm hoping we're moving towards this convergence of robotics and conversational systems. Somehow robotics has always been this hardware first discipline with the interface being an afterthought. And then you have conversational systems where it's all about the accuracy of the speech recognition and, and all that. And it's neglected the embodiment part of it. So hopefully, I don't know if it's going to happen in the next six months or whatever. And there is a price point to hit with these systems as well. But I do believe that's where we'll get much more use of these conversational systems in the home. So a little background story about myself going through like formal education and through my work experience, I've been able to collect like around a little over 10 plus patents, but you have 32 patents. Eight patents. 38 patents. Oh my God. <laughs> so big question. What drives you to innovate and invent things? Oh, it's fun. Innovation is fun. And yeah, I think that's, it's like I work to be able to innovate. If that's taken away from me ever, uh, I think I'll be, uh, I'd be miserable. And I've had the fortune of being in settings where uh, it's conducive to innovation. It's always difficult, especially for a startup, to justify investment in research and innovation. But I think it makes a lot of sense, even from the earlier days of a startup, to have that mentality of it's research, innovation that funnels into a platform that leads to a product that leads to revenue. We start thinking of it that way and we have this sort of engine of innovation built into the, the startup or in the large company. In larger companies too, it's a challenge. Uh, larger companies don't always see that longer term value in innovation and research. I think, I think it, it pays back. It pays back big time because it, you, it, it is at the end of the day, the differentiation that you bring to the table. Your differentiation can't just be the price or the quality of what you produce. There has to be innovation as a component of that. Otherwise, the others are not very difficult to replicate. 
yeah so i've been lucky to be in those settings all my life and yeah it's cool yeah you got like a particularly favorite patent or something like that you invented that you're quite proud of that you want to share the very first patent um is is on multi-agent systems to tackle natural language tasks and i was very proud of it it was my first patent the language I used in describing how you would actually uh, have these agents communicate with each other was natural language. Like even in the patent, as you read it, the queries, do you know anything about this? Oh yeah, I can do this part and so forth. So the way I described it was not in formal language. It was in natural language. Back then, I didn't think that we would, a, a day would come where that sort of agent experience extensible, powerful agent, multi-agent system could be driven by large language models that do actually understand language. But I think uh, that's where we are today. We can just imagine if you had a large language model representing various different functionalities and these agents, so to speak, would be able to communicate with each other and you as they try to sort of on your behalf, get something done. Uh, that was the subject and the vision of that first patent. Um, I hope I'm not, after the fact, projecting too much on it. But at the time, I was very proud of that. Um, I've also had a couple of patents on decision-making and explainable decision-making, for example, that I'm very proud of. And, and they're very topical today because, um, as I said, I think all AI and analytics and everything we do is, at the end of the day, in the service of decision-making I think it's naive to think that humans, decision-making is the exclusive domain of humans. Humans are, in fact, in some respects, not very good at decision-making, as we can see from the state of the world. And, and so I think technology that helps augment and improve decision-making is quite fundamental. So today, OpenAI had Dev Day, and some of the really hot stuff that came out of it was they have the new GPT-4 Turbo which now has a context window of 128K, which now they're placing themselves directly in competition with Anthropic, which has 100K. And then furthermore, they've uh, previously released Dolly 3, which is to be more competitive against Stable Diffusion. They have a text-to-speech that's built into it. In in your opinion, like, how do you view the current state of, like, conversational models like ChatGPT? Yeah, I think these are fundamentally very important incremental improvements to the technology. And it is that is the trajectory. And I think for a while now, that is going to be where we push the technology, like incrementally getting the larger and larger context windows, because you we can get more done with a larger context window. Otherwise, we have to jump through hoops and play all sorts of tricks to remember where we were. And anyone who's actually tried to, for example, have ChatGPT edit a document knows that it's not easy to just feed the entire document in. If it doesn't fit, you have to take it piece by piece and have it summarized and all sorts of things. So the context, the size of the context window does matter. And with scale, we might actually be able to grow that uh, context window, especially if what we're doing is we're tasking the large language model to to manipulate data, unstructured or structured data. There's tons and tons of data out there. And if we're really limited on that window, it defeats the whole purpose. It slows the whole thing down. So that's one aspect. The size itself, when you talk about Turbo, now I haven't really had a chance to read up on what happened today in Dev Day for OpenAI, but the fact is that we saw that moving from GPT-3 to 3.5 Turbo, distilling these larger models down to smaller, faster, and therefore cheaper models does make a ton of sense because it is conducive to more usage and cheaper usage and faster usage. Just imagine you are a company and you have a terabyte of data that you want to run through GPT-4. Oh my God, it's going to take forever because A, you have limited context window. B, it's slow. Okay, now you have GPT-4 Turbo, larger context window and faster. Awesome. That kind of cuts down on the time it takes for you to process that with a more powerful model like GPT-4. So it does make sense. I think in open source too, we are seeing and will see smaller, more capable models with larger context windows, but of course it's gonna follow. It's, they're not as 
powerful yet. The state of the art is still commercial. Yeah, because before these large language models that have very large context windows, the only way to really get the information that you need in terms of context into large language models through vector databases, that's still like the hot thing that's happening. But I, in my opinion, I think that one for one, these large monolithic LMs with huge context windows are going to remove that type of strain in terms of trying to use a vector database to get the, that context. I think um, it'll improve them. I don't think the vector database is going to go away. However, there are limitations to using vector databases today because what we do is we go, okay, summarize this document and then give me the embeddings and I'll store it in a vector database. So that summary, the size of that summary matters because you're losing information as you're summarizing. If you have a larger context window, the embedding that you can retrieve is larger. And so for some documents, you don't, you might not even need to summarize. And for some documents, the degree of summarization is less lossy when it comes to the information content, right? And so you can put that in a, you still need a vector database to store it in, but you have much more in there and it'll make it much more useful, I think. So yeah, definitely a big step. Yeah. What's your take on like large language models versus small language models, which is a new thing that's happening. So to the viewers here, there's a big difference between the two. The SLMs are a brand new thing that has been occurring in the last couple of months. And an SLM basically is a shrunken down version of a much larger monolithic LM. So when I say a, a large monolithic LM, I'm talking about your chat GPTs, or I'm sorry, your GPT engines, your Anthropics, those are very large models that take like a lot of money, a lot of GPU power to train. Now you can take a small little language model and train it on, say, like 1.5 billion or 7 billion parameter sizes, which are very small and have a very niche market that you can tackle. So what's your take on companies switching, or not really switching, but meandering into and testing out these small language models for specific use cases and moving away from these large monolithic models? Yeah, let's remember that the smaller models are keying off of the larger models. So you need you do need the larger models and then you distill them and you distill them into the domain that you want to use them for. And so you see these distilled models that are really good at, let's say, writing code, but they suck at machine translation. And then the same like base model, you produce a different distilled model that is good at machine translation, but doesn't know how to write code, for example. And they're small and they're fast, and that makes a lot of sense. I think it does make a lot of sense. I, I do think that the world is going to move towards agent-based systems where we plug in the language model that serves us best for that particular task. And for that, you, we might actually select from a palette of different language models that are distilled, as you say, they might be SLMs, for the various tasks in this multi-agent system or this workflow that you want to use. So that kind of thinking does lend itself very well to the use of these distilled models versus the alternative, which is I have this very large model that you, with which you can do anything, but it's large and it's slow and it's expensive. And it might not be very good because at that particular task, because it has so much more to do as well. So I think it, I, I, I do think looking into my, crystal ball, I think we will all be AI users soon. But the barrier of ent entry is actually much lower because you don't need to know Python. You don't need to know a specific language. You can actually use your own mother tongue to give the large language model a persona. So we'll all get to a point where like using a calculator, we would pull the model that is really good at something we would give it an English language description of its task and what it needs to do and plug it into a workflow where it works with other models to achieve something that we're an expert in uh, and to help us with that. I know that sounds complex maybe a little bit, but it's not going to be. I think we, uh, we'll learn how to do that very quickly. And, and there's so much we do on a day-to-day -day basis that can make use of generative AI, and we're only just scratching the surface. We're really limited by our imagination right now. Yeah, I agree. Like everybody right now that has used ChatGPT, congrats, you are a surprise text prompt engineer. And uh, <laughs> yeah, and, and I think the next coding language moving forward is going to be English. There's We're going to be moving away from trying to build all this complex code with, with these engineers, and we're going to have these pick and place 
modules on a what like a workflow that you could just yeah. click and drag and then all you have to do is just type in natural language in english what you want and it's going to give you that output so i think that's we're still maybe like a year or two away from that but i think that's like the general gist of where the i would agree is. i would agree a year or two is a comfortable forecast here it's it's usually not very easy to predict the future but we're at this incremental stage as you said like with for example, the size of the context window or the size of these models, as well as the usage itself, where it is somewhat easier to predict where this thing is going to go, at least in the next uh, next few years. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So at, at Bletchley Park, Elon Musk gave a presentation where he was speculating that AI is going to be taking over some jobs, which we are seeing. The Obviously, with automation comes job displacement, and then you'll have to re-upskill yourself to, to get back in the loop. So in light of all this, all these AI advancements, how can companies manage talent shortage? There's a huge talent shortage right now in the AI field. And obviously the federal government now wants, wants to get in on that. So how do you manage that talent shortage? And then additionally, like, how do you just upskill your workforce? Yeah, uh, that is a challenge. Now, as we just pointed out, the barrier to entry is lower. And I think this upskilling is unlike other such disruptive revolutions is actually not going to be as as disruptive simply because people are able to upskill very quickly. As you said, this is your own mother tongue that you're using, uh, and it will level the playing field. You don't really need a PhD in AI to be able to use AI. Um, and uh, uh, I think you bring in your uh, distinct set of talents and the niche you play in, and you upskill yourself by teaching yourself how to build these, orchestrate these AI systems. And it's all English. <laughs> the tools aren't quite there yet, but I think in the next few months are going to be there so that a broader set of folks can use it. You don't have to actually pull code from GitHub to get it going. But I think it's going to get there and it's going to get there soon. And just imagine more and more people being able to use AI to get more productive and higher quality in what they do. I think it's only a good thing. Yes, it's challenging challenging in the short term, but I think that is going to be a short period before we get to a point where we have a lot of adoption at a wide scale. Yeah. There was a survey done by workers and over half of them said that they were using some type of conversational AI bot to help them at work without telling their bosses. So in your opinion, like what's your vision for like the future of work in this like ever-growing AI-driven world? Definitely. I think I think it, the, the use is already pervasive. Folks who've been slow to adopt it just look at their kids and they're like, okay, it's, this is something I can pick up. Like I remember back in the day when I was coding and using a computer, my mom was a technophobe and she was like, oh, she saw the keyboard and she was like, she would freak out. But that's not the case now. It's for all of us, regardless of age group and even education, we're able to actually pick this technology up and run with it. Yeah, I think the future of work is a rethinking of how we AI and how we weave AI and orchestrate and engineer it into doing what we need to do. And then will come the disruption. So right now we are organized the way we've we've always been organized in our companies and and at work, uh, which is an, a human centric way of organizing, which sits on top of our strengths and weaknesses and decision-making in this in these hierarchies. Um, I think the first wave is going to be, okay, let's just adopt AI-based means to improve on that. But sooner or later, I think we will start rethinking that organizational structure as well, because we can now plug in AI systems that can make autonomously make some decisions and will not need to be ordered in that kind of high, elaborate hierarchy in order to in order to work because human societies work that way it's harder to imagine what that might look like but i think we we will gradually get there just out of necessity organizations that will cut down on the inefficiencies uh, of a human centric decision structure uh, are are just simply going to be better and 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 prevail that is probably quite a few years out, but I think that's where we're going to get to. Yeah, if I needed to get in touch with you, like how would I do that? Uh, yes, hit me up on LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn. Just search for Bob Akhojat, D-A-K-H-O-D-J-A-T. 
be very happy to hear from you and uh, yeah, connect to me there. Cool. So in your opinion, looking at just the broader picture, right? Like where do you see AI going in the next couple of years? Let's just say the next two years. For me, my I'm anticipating that every single company out there is going to have a chatbot. And that's coming very soon. It's, it'll be in a matter of months. Like every company will be able to slap a chatbot in pretty easily, be able to chat with their data. I also think that everyone's going to be able to like chat with their, their like documents and data. For instance, like uh, ChatGPT has their own, uh, upload your own PDFs and chat with it. They recently released a connector that allows you to connect with Microsoft 365. Be able to grab larger amounts of documents to be able to chat with it. I think that's going to be played out. But what's the big move, the, the, like the big next move that's going to happen, that's going to be groundbreaking? Yeah, I think this will start off with disparate chatbots, each having their own roles, uh, primarily where that sort of interaction is happening even today. Oh, I want access to some document or I want access to some uh, data somewhere and it's easier to just type it in. Um, or for support with customers, not just internal, but with customers as well. But gradually, we'll get to a point where what we expect is to have a single interface that does all of that, gets all of that done. Now, regardless of whether in the background is actually using a number of different LLM uh, agents, generative AI agents to, to make that happen. And we our expectations will go up as far as what we expect these systems to do beyond just, oh, get me some information. It's going to start being consultative, not just get me some information, but tell me what to do with it and what kind of action to take. And, oh, if I take this action, what's going to happen? Give me an alternative that has better outcomes that you predict. Hopefully, we'll also get to a point where we expect our AI systems to give us a sense of how confident they are for specific predictions and recommendations that they make to us. That's a taller order. And I think it's important, though, for us to remember that we shouldn't be taking whatever these systems say verbatim. Even as humans, sometimes we feel like, okay, I'm in unfamiliar territory here and I'm not as confident. So I think it's important for us to take all of those like usability aspects of these systems into consideration and it's only when we expect these things that that folks like myself that are engineers will actually provision them. I think that's in the shorter term, that's where we're going to go. And then lastly, do you have any advice for aspiring AI professionals or like entrepreneurs that want to get into this AI field? Like I'll, I'll go first, right? Like for instance, if you come up with this really cool idea that is that was going to be popular, I would say don't go after that because these big companies are going to go and wait for these smaller companies to make a dent. And then they're going to immediately release a product on their own platform. That's going to kill it. Like for instance, chat GBT waited for other people to develop these like POCs. An example of that would be like chatting with your PDF. There, there has been a lot of companies that create these chatting with your PDF product offerings. They just waited to see like how that market would react because those companies are taking the risk first. Once they've seen that, they immediately just flipped a switch on their own platform. And now you can upload, upload your own PDFs and be able to chat with it. So for me, I would say things that are very obvious, that's a pain point. Don't go after that because those big companies are just waiting for you to take that risk first to test that market. And then they're going to immediately introduce that as a product offering to, to uh, kill off that company. I would say go after like niche like problems, like things that like these big companies don't care for, but yet you, yet you can still offer a lot of value to your customers. Like what's your take on that? I, I would totally agree. A company like OpenAI um, is putting a general purpose AI out there and you can't beat them at, at, at what they do unless, I shouldn't say can't, you, you can, it, it will take a lot of innovation. And these days, unfortunately, a lot of money as well to build large enough competing systems. But where you can play is in an area where you are the domain expert and you can build something differentiated by utilizing these systems. An open AI wouldn't want to play in that very specific domain. And that's where you will shine and you'll do and you will bring in some of the trade secrets and learnings as to what works and doesn't work within that particular domain. It's like the early days of computing. Like in, in the early days of computing, you, you wouldn't go out and 
create something generic that's just compiles and runs code. That's something that larger companies do. But you would go out and build an application in a specific area that does really well. And you, you would excel there. But yeah, totally agree with you. I think that's the way to go. Thanks so much for being on the show. And to the viewers, stay curious.